This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. Welcome to another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. Super excited for our guest today, my friend Brad Snyder, uh, retired Navy Lieutenant and Paralympic champion. Um, I'm so excited to be able to talk to you. And, you know, I, I, I kept seeing your face everywhere on M- NBC and uh, tracking you with everything that you were doing. And, you know, one of the things that I'd love to do as we get started, Brad, is, you know, talk about your recent gold medal. I mean, it's a big deal. Uh, I'd love awesome. to talk about it. I'll answer anything <laughs> you'd like to know about it. <laughs> I actually so, have it right here. Uh, it's right here. My this is my office and my duffels are all right over there. You can't see, but I haven't even unpacked from Tokyo yet. But I did. I threw my medal uh, for the for the folks on YouTube. I'll throw it out. This is my my medal. My wife actually hasn't seen it yet either. But here it is right here. <laughs> First view before the wife. That's pretty exciting. That's exactly right. She's kind of salty about it, but I'll show it to her after. Later. Um, yeah. So. Man, it was super exciting. Uh, I. It's been an odd journey for sure. This last go around, um, uh, we were all set to kind of debut into a real kick-ass season last go last uh, in twenty in uh, in twenty twenty. You know, the year we were going to make the team, we were down in Florida for a race. My wife and I uh, and my guide, um, we were getting ready. Uh, we were going to bed. You know, we went to bed early to get ready for the race, and then we woke up to an email saying. Uh, the race has been canceled. Uh, and like, uh, I, I think we all can remember it was March 14th of last year, everything started to kind of crumble, crumble apart. And um, a week later, I was in on the, I'm, I'm on the board with the USOPC, the uh, United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. And we had a, a number of really intense meetings where for a while, there was a thought that the Olympics and Paralympics would be straight up canceled. Uh, so coming from, you know, all the way from there to not only did we have a games, uh, but we had an amazing games. Um, I, I actually, I made the team and then not only did I make the team I actually won a gold. So that going from that whole full circle, just an absolutely uh, incredible journey. Um, from a race perspective, it was a really fun race. It's the first time, uh, internationally that I won. Um, and it was the first time that I went into the run with that kind of a lead and, that made it a really fun race for sure. So uh, it was an incredible victory and uh, really proud of it. And um, the whole way through, the thing that got me through, I think this go around from Rio to now was my wife. I I met my wife in between Rio and Tokyo Um, when we were dating. I kind of told her, you know, I do this triathlon thing. And she was like, yeah, that sounds cool. I want in, I'll do that with you. And I was like, yeah, but it's, pretty long workouts. We're always on the bike. We're always on the treadmill. And it's not the thing she said, Oh yeah, no, I'll do it with you. So day after day, she's done every workout with me along the way. And despite all the trials and tribulations, she's been the first one to kind of keep me going. And, um, we were sad that she wasn't able to be there, but we were super excited to kind of see this, be able to reap the reward of all the the struggles over the last five years. It's awesome. Brad, I'm super proud of you. And it was, Again, every time I saw you, I was like, I know him. And, you know, just just such an awesome accomplishment. You know, you NBC actually called you one of the most recognizable athletes competing at the Tokyo Paralympics. And um, but I think what I'd love to do is start back from there. Let's what led you to that moment, right? That gold medal in Tokyo. And I think you know, for our listeners, it's important for them to understand what happened on September 11th to September 7th, 2011. Um, and, and subsequently the journey that followed. So I'll, I'll just let you kind of dive right in and share what you want to share. Yeah. Um, so it's a long story. We're going to go back a few years at this point. It's now been over a decade. Um, so stop me if, uh, if you, if you want, but 
I uh, used to be an explosive ordnance disposal officer, which is a bit of a mouthful, but it's basically the bomb squad for the Navy. I made two deployments while I was active duty with the Navy, uh, one to Iraq, one to Afghanistan. Um, my job in Afghanistan was I was an embedded, uh, you know, I was the explosive specialist for an assault team, and we would go on these missions in various areas of Afghanistan, trying to do two things. One, uh, impede the Taliban's ability to be in that area and exert their influence, but also at the same time, train the Afghan commandos, they were called, uh, you know, Afghan special forces. We were We were training them to hopefully defend the country of Afghanistan, which now is a whole nother discussion, but this was 2011. Um, at that time, the Taliban was using quite a few IEDs, making the IEDs being improvised explosive devices, making it very, uh, very difficult to get from one one place to another. And so, um, we everywhere we went, one of uh, an, an EOD tech like myself would walk out in front of our patrol with a metal detector, looking for these IEDs that were all over the place. Um, on the morning of September seventh, two thousand eleven, uh, one of the members of our assault team, actually two. Uh, well, one guy stepped on it. It was an Afghan uh, Special Forces commando, uh, stepped off of the path that had been cleared by my teammate, Adam, and uh, had stepped right on a 40-pound IED. Uh, by virtue of comparison, a, a grenade is about a quarter pound, so, um, you know, uh, uh, 400 times the size of a grenade, essentially. Uh, or I, did, I did that math terribly, but anyway, a lot bigger than a grenade. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so um, they had stepped on a 40-pound IED, and which ended up fatally wounding the two of them. Um, but myself and Adam kind of jumped into uh, trying to, to to get those guys to 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 help. You know, uh, the tactic that we leaned on was not for anybody to rush to help them because where there's one bomb, there's likely multiple. So we the the we would drill this a lot where the EOD techs myself and Adam would clear space with our metal detectors so the medics could get down to the casualties we could get the casualties on litters get them to a helicopter and they'll be on their way. Well, in that you know that sounds pretty straightforward, but it's very chaotic on the ground. And in that chaos, I stepped on another IED that was about a meter and a half away from the first one. Um, thankfully, I was all alone. No one was around me when I got hurt, so it was just uh, me in the blast. I also got really lucky in that the, the main charge of the explosive was not immediately under the pressure plate. It was separated. So because it blew up in front of me as opposed to underneath me, that largely saved my life. I think if it had blown up underneath me another 40 pounds, I, I probably wouldn't have lived. Um, but because it blew up in front of me, the blast came out of the ground, hit me in the face, and knocked me backward. And I laid there on the ground. And I remember the thoughts that went through my mind immediately after that blast was that I knew for sure that I had been blown up. I knew for sure that it had been a big blast. And uh, adding those two things together made me believe wholeheartedly that I had died. And I laid there for what felt to me like a very long time. In reality, was not a very long time at all. But I laid there. Uh, and I thought over my whole life. I thought about all of the things that I had done. I thought about going to the academy. I thought about throwing my hat in the air. I thought about swimming all those years. And you know, all those thoughts kind of flashed through my mind. And I remember thinking that I was proud of the life that I had lived. I was sad that I wouldn't be able to come back and see my family. But I thought that while they'd be sad that I, uh, I died in the service, they would be really proud of the life that I had lived. And I remember thinking all of these things. And I remember thinking my grandfather, who was a, a Navy veteran, served in the Battle of Midway in, in World War II. I had this feeling that my grandfather was going to come and grab me and take me wherever to whatever happens after you die. But then this really incredible thing happened where I didn't die. And instead of my grandfather, my buddy Adam came over to me. And immediately I, I kind of started to panic because moment ago I was dying and that was going to be relatively easy, but now coming back to life is going to be hard because I, I know there, mu there must be something wrong with me. There must be, I must have something wrong with my back or my spinal cord or my brain or for, surely my face is disfigured. Oh no, are what's this going to be like? Are you yeah. registering at this time that you can't see? No, I didn't. That, that That's kind of another wild aspect of this. I didn't, I didn't know for some time that I was blind. I, I, I don't really, I can't really like piece together exactly what happens after that moment. But I remember yelling to my teammate, Luke. I yelled at him after I had stood up, Adam stood me up and we were walking on our way back to the helicopter and Luke was guiding me at one point. 
And I remember yelling to Luke, like, you have to tell me what's on the ground. I can't see it. Tell me what's on the ground. And Luke got frustrated trying to tell me what was on the ground. So he just picked me up and he carried me to where the helicopter was going to come down. Uh, and so that I must not have been able to see at that moment, but I, I don't remember thinking I'm blind. I remember thinking like something must be in my face, like something's, you know, there's something over my eyes or something like that. And I just kind of felt maybe that was temporary. And that feeling didn't leave for a few weeks. I, I, I didn't really realize I was blind for three weeks. I was awake in the hospital in Walter Reed and I was having so much, you know, I, I think that I, I don't know what, what bets you've had on the podcast so far. I don't know if anybody's talked about the feeling of being in Walter Reed. For me, waking up for the first couple of weeks, I was on so many meds. It was really hard to wrap my head around what was going on. Like I could, I could hear things from real life and I would have an idea of what was real, but I'd have these real bad hallucinations. Like I'd believe that I was in the middle of a desert or I'd believe that I was in a shopping mall, this, like these weird hallucinations. So making sense of it all was not really all that easy. And because I was having such vivid hallucinations in my mind, I didn't recognize that I was blind for a while until about two, I think it was about two weeks. No, it was, a, it was either a week or a two weeks into Walter Reed. There was a, the last surgery that I'd have to go through. There was a team of surgeons in there who believed that they could save my vision. And to your point, they kept saying, save my vision, save my vision, save my vision. I was like, I don't know what that means. What do you mean save my vision? Uh, I didn't really realize that I was blind until the doctor said, you have a less than 1% chance of being able to perceive light and dark with your right eye. Your left eye, you'll, you'll not be able to see anything. So we're gonna, we have to remove it. So was, that prognosis, less than 1% is not good. Right. And he wasn't saying you'd be able to see. He was, being with, he was saying you'd be able to perceive light and dark. Um, now the outcome of that surgery was not favorable. I can, I have no vision whatsoever in either eye, but that was the first moment that I realized there's a big loss here. Um, it's but honestly, oh, go sorry, ahead. Brad. No, no, it's interesting go ahead. because you, you, you asked about, you know, what, what guests I've had on and, you know, I've, I've had Rob Jones, who is mm -hmm. an amputee, double amputee. And I just had Kirstie Ennis on, uh, yeah. who's also an amputee and, all of you kind of share the the same type of story that um, and and I think in some on some level um, anybody that goes through something very physically traumatic uh, there's this really kind of period of non recollection right and and I don't know if that's your body's you know it's probably the medication but also your body's response to kind of keeping you out of that shock and just yeah you know and so but all three of you kind of talked about the same like you know things are fuzzy for those first three but you know, i'm i'm in i'm in theater and then i'm in walter reed and yeah. i'm not quite sure what happens until one day you know there's kind of this epiphany of like okay this is life now and did yeah. you have a moment like that where you were just like this is it and and what happens next like a moment where all of a sudden everything kind of hit you um, on where you were and, and what had happened? Um, kind of. I think that moment for me happened much later, much later, uh, almost two years. Um, what in, in, the, in the hospital, juxtaposing this idea of I'm blind and I'm in the hospital versus I thought I just died. I was still, I was very grateful to be alive. I, I really had a, a huge tidal wave of that in my heart through that whole Walter Reed experience. So I just was kind of flabbergasted that I had come that close and I didn't. And now there was a lot of adjustment, but I was just thinking like, I was relieved to, to be honest with you, I was relieved to not be on the battlefield anymore. I knew every time we stepped off, stepped off the ramp of the helicopter that we were on, we were, in a, in a really dangerous situation uh, with all of the IEDs, with what was going on there, it was just, I kind of thought every mission we go on is a, is a really high likelihood that I'm gonna end up in a, in, a, in a tough spot. And I remember every time we got back on the helicopter after a mission, I would be so relieved. Like we made, we made it through another one. So I'm in the hospital in Walter Reed. I know I don't have to go on any other missions. I don't have to go back out of that battle space. In some ways I'm relieved. I'm grateful to be alive. That carried me for quite some time. And then one of the gifts of blindness is actually 
you just get this new mission. Like the new mission was, how do I figure out how to do all of this stuff blind? All the stuff I'm used to doing, how can I do it blind? And it's challenging and it's frustrating, but it's there's a rigor to that. There's a, I wake up every day and I need to practice this thing and practice this other thing and learn this other thing and acquire this new technology so that I can learn all of these different skills, so on and so forth. So there was sort of a, uh, a rigor to my mission over the next year or so. And then that included sports. I got into sports before I even left the hospital. So my new mission became, I wanna swim, I, I wanna go to the Paralympics. And that sort of took over my life for a while. It wasn't, in back, it wasn't until I got back from London and I moved to Baltimore, I got a, I got a, a, a guide dog and I kinda, that was my what's next. What, what does life look like now? I'm, you know, I was 20, I was 28 or nine at the time. I'm young. I, I wasn't married. I didn't have a career anymore. I didn't really know what I was trying to do. Yeah. And that was the, the crisis. I got, I had this moment where I was in the dog park with my dog and my, my first service dog would think it was kind of a cute game to play. Like I would be at the dog, the dog park and I'd say, come here. And she'd get just close enough, but then would run away, which was a cute game for her. But I had this moment, like I'm helpless without my dog. I can't, I can't get out of here. I can't even leave the dog park. I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I'm helpless. And I just had this like, oh, so frustrated. And uh, I think that was kind of like the beginning of the, how do I put these pieces back together and figure out you know, how do I find my identity again? How do I find my value? That sort of thing. And so that was, that was two years later. And yeah. so for those first two years, you're just incredibly grateful to be alive and focused on, you know, how do I live life blind and, and setting into motion every day, what you have to do. And, and, you know, I think it's interesting because you think about this idea of, two years later, right? Like you, you left that hospital saying, okay, this is my new mission. I've got to figure out how to live life as a, a blind individual. I want to get into sports. I want to swim again. I want to do all these things. I, you know, you're talking about wanting to be a Paralympian before you're leaving the hospital. And it's funny too, because, you know, I, I talk a lot about after Travis was killed, um, I didn't fully process his death and I didn't kind of have that wave that hit me with Travis's death until my mom died. Of course, I had that initial shock of, you know, my, my brother's been killed, but it was go through the motions every day. What am I going to do next? Like I, I decided I was going to run a marathon and that's what I focused on every yeah. day. And it was like yep. that focus. And it was actually five years later, just weeks after we buried my mom, all of a sudden I got hit with this. Oh my God. And, and it yeah. came over me in a wave and it was debilitating for me for about six months. So I can so fully relate to having that long period of time before you kind of get hit with the reality that you're actually facing. Yeah. Um, I feel that. And, um, you know, for you, uh, you swam in college, you went to the Naval Academy and, and how do you get reintroduced? Do you have this moment where you're like, okay, I, I swam before that brought me uh, satisfaction. I want to swim again. Like, how does that, how does that all start? And, and frankly, do you remember that first time? Because it's one thing to navigate uh, without your sight, but I, I can't imagine stepping into a big body of water without your sight. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's got to be pretty intimidating. I don't know any other word for it, but. Um, Ironically, it's the opposite for me. I'm just a water person. I grew up in the water. I'm from Florida. I was a swimmer from a very young age. For me, the water was a place of comfort. And it didn't start as this Paralympic journey. It didn't even start competitive. It was just uh, coming back, I think, post-injury, I felt a bit like a foreign version of myself. I didn't feel like I knew who I was exactly in, at that moment in time. And moreover, I didn't know, or I didn't feel comfortable with or know or understand how my, uh, everyone else was looking at me. And you're real sensitive, I think, in that particular time period where, you know, how are people looking at me and, and that I have these scars and I'm blind and I'm using this cane 
And it's very clear that I don't really always know where I am. <laughs> it's very clear that I'm not the cool, confident, capable person that I was a few weeks ago, a few months ago. And I don't know what I look like in other people's minds. And I know that they seem to be very devastated, like my mother and my family and a lot of friends, they're, they come into the hospital and they're crying a lot and they're hugging you. And I think in between you feel, I felt from them, I don't know if they said this explicitly, but I could feel for them. They were very worried about what the rest of my life was going to be look, was going to look like. They just, it was really hard for them to wrap their heads around what blindness was going to be like. And I think just in society in general, we look at disability that way. We look at those in wheelchairs that way. We look, it's just like a, well, you can't meaningfully join the workforce or do things for yourself if you're disabled. What a, what a death sentence that is. And maybe even I had some of that in my head. So I needed something to get me out of that zone. I needed to get me something. I, I didn't want people's pity. I didn't want people thinking they needed to help me. I wanted to get back to sort of like the cool, collected, capable version of myself as quickly as possible. And um, I, as a real lucky twist of fate, I got moved from Walter Reed to a VA near where I grew up in St. Pete, Florida. It was the James A. Haley VA on the other side of Tampa. And shortly after I got there, I was well enough to kind of qualify for, I don't know what they called it, but it was like a weekend pass. Like I would have to do I'd have to be inpatient Monday through Friday, but then I could leave. My mom could sign me out of the hospital. I could go home over the weekend. And it was either the first or the second weekend I was out of the hospital at home. I went home. And the last time I had been home was 2001 or two, right before I had gone to the academy. And I was a swimmer then. And all I ever did when I was home was go to swim practice. And I bumped, or I think my mom or somebody bumped into my old swim coach and he had kind of offered like, we have swim practice just like we did when you were here before on Saturday. Do you want to come? <laughs> and, and I was like, of course I want to. Yeah, that's exactly the thing I want to do. That's the perfect thing for me to just jump back into who I was and start to show people that everything is fine and I am totally normal and this is who I am. I'm cool. I'm calm. I'm collected. I'm, I'm capable. And it, it probably didn't look like that because I showed up at the pool and my coach gave me this big scuba mask because I still had you know stuff around my eyes. So he gave me this big scuba mask I could wear, and then he had put, he'd stretched out these pool noodles at the edge of each lane. So you had the lane line going up in, uh, on either right and the left side, and then he had a pool noodle stretched across right by the wall. So he said, if you hit the pool noodle, stop, because that's the wall right behind it, and then you flip around and go back the other way. And I was like, that's brilliant. So I hopped in, and I just swam back and forth, you know, not more than eight times, but it was awesome. It was it was so liberating. It was the first thing I did blind where I didn't need someone to help me. I didn't need a cane. I didn't, I didn't feel constrained. I just jumped in and I felt like I was just lightning through the water and I felt strong. I felt free. It was just an amazing feeling. And I feel like uh, other people who were there, including my mom, looked at that and it was kind of a, the first node in our sort of recovery that said, I think things are going to be fine. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's awesome. That's, um, I love that, you know, just kind of finding, finding your way again. And, and, you know, I know there are some specific roles that people have when you're dealing with blindness, but the importance of community when you're going through challenging time, that's something most people, regardless of the, the type of trial that they're going to, through can relate to. Um, did you recognize that early in your recovery or was was there a, that, that you recognized, you know, the, the power of community, the community around you? Um, describe that for us. Yeah, it. I think uh, initially, no, because I'm stubborn. And I re realized how stubborn I am pretty quickly. Blindness forces you to understand that you need help. That's the biggest, that was the hardest thing for me to learn through that whole process. I'm just used to being very independent, very capable. I can do all of these different things. I can, I can put Ikea furniture together without any instructions. I can jump out of planes. I can do all of this stuff, you know? And for the first time, I just am grinding to a halt on the simplest of things. And I need someone to, like when I was early on in the hospital, I needed, I was, uh, I needed someone to give me like the little, uh, the, the, uh, you know, they give you the diaper wipe bath in the hospital. I remember having two buddies of mine help me do the diaper wipe uh, bath. And that's like, 
that's who you know your real friends are, the people <laughs> who are going to give you the diaper wipe bath in the hospital. That's friendship for sure. And just kind of day one to day 15, day 30, day you know 100, there's always somebody to jump in and show you the next thing. The person who's going to teach me how to use my cane, the person who's going to um, help me with the service dog or get me the iPad or work, work through the computer. And then inevitably my family, like they all took turns. Uh, my mom had to go back to work. My brothers all worked. My sister had to work, but they would fly with me on the weekends and stay wherever I was, whether it was in Tampa, Florida or in Augusta, Georgia, or then eventually to Baltimore. They all invested themselves in a meaningful way in, into my life and my recovery. Um, and then the, you know, the Paralympic thing wasn't even really my idea. People were, there were so many people uh, throughout that whole process who were, you know, there to give us resources, to give us help. And uh, the, there was actually, a, the, the reason I got involved in Paralympics is there was a fellow named Rich Cardillo who used to work at the uh, United States Association for Blind Athletes. And he had, he called me and his whole job, is, his job was the military outreach coordinator for USABA. And his job was to reach out to blinded vets and give them opportunities to do sports. And he kept saying, do you realize how lucky it is you are to be injured in a Paralympic year. And I <laughs> that's such a cool, a cool perspective. So yeah, I think initially I was just on this like stubborn me mission to like get myself back on my feet. But it's a very humbling process where you fall and I literally smack my face into so many walls that I realize I'm not going to be able to do this alone. And I have to uh, I have to let others in and I have to learn how to ask, ask for help. And that was a rewarding process. And it really did culminate with that podium in 2012, where you stand there and you listen to that anthem play and you imagine that flag being raised. You realize those 50 stars from 13 stripes represent something so much bigger than you. And I really did feel as though in that moment that I was like, really just kind of like the center of this amazing community. And I got to represent all their collective efforts in a, in a nice kind of tangible you know, a tangible representation of all that goodness. I love that. I, you know, I, I have to be honest with you when I think about, and, you know, I've had that, I don't want to compare one person's tragedy or disability mm -hmm. to another, but um, I, I could not imagine being without my sight. And I think about all the little things that you had to relearn every little thing. And, and I remember the first time I met you, you came and I was speaking at the Naval Academy and you came and you had your service dog and I watched you. And, and again, this was a few years ago and, and you were definitely many years out from your, from your, you know, your initial um, injury. So you had clearly learned to navigate so well. And if, you haven't been in Alumni Hall at the Naval Academy. The stairs are incredibly steep. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not an easy auditorium, I will say. And, and you walked in there and you said you were trying to become that person that was cool, calm, collected. And, and, and when I first met you, you had all of that. You had your dog and, and you actually like didn't, you were, I, you said something where I don't know, somebody tried to guide you or open the door and you were like, I, I got it. Like you knew, cause you knew that you had been there before, you know, you knew yeah. that room. And so you were like, I, I got it. And I saw you going up the stairs with your dog and you were going to kind of where we had our guests seated. And I was just blown away by <laughs> just, again, the confidence you exuded and knowing that it, it took a lot to get to that place. Right. And mm -hmm. Um, and then you came, I don't know if it was the next year or the following year, you actually came and spoke at the Marine Corps Marathon to yeah. our runners. We had about 300 people in the room and we were actually just talking about this before uh, the episode started with our producers because they were both there at that uh, oh, dinner and you know, you couldn't see it, but we have a guest speaker every year before the marathon and they're all incredible and they're all super inspiring but there was not a dry eye in that room. And if there was anybody that was going to get people to run 26.2 miles without feeling, a, you know, a damn bit sorry for themselves, it was you. 
And so, um, yeah, I mean, so everything you were trying to accomplish in the way that people see you, um, you've accomplished that because, uh-huh. you know, you, you come across so confident and, and clearly listen, I think it, there, there had to be something innate inside of you before September 7th, 2011. Um, you know, it wasn't that you, you clearly had that within you before that date and you were able to channel that, um, through what you dealt with, but I'd love to dive into a little bit because we kind of started off with, you won a gold medal in, in Tokyo. Like <laughs> let's, let's kind of just dive a little bit into that journey. So from that first swim practice where you jump in, you're in, you're with your old swim coach and you're like, I love this. How, how does that first swim become, I want to become a, a Paralympian? Like what, what's the path that, that you had to take for that to happen? In, in 2012, it was a very linear journey. It was sort of laid out before me. And I, I mentioned Rich Cardillo at the, uh, the U.S. Association of Blind Athletes. He really deserves much of the credit for kind of laying that out. And I originally kind of told him no. I, he said, uh, are you interested in flying to a swim meet and trying out this Paralympic thing? And at the time, this must have been January or so of t- 2012, I was still so freshly hurt and I, I, re- I was really convinced that I needed to get a laptop and figure out how to do Microsoft PowerPoint and Excel so that I could get a job. That's what I was thinking about in January. I was like, I'm gonna need a job. I, I'm gonna have to get out of the military. I can't do this EOD thing anymore. I'm gonna need a job. I gotta figure out Excel. And so Rich Cardillo calls me and he says, do you wanna do swimming? I thought, no, 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 swimming's like a hobby. I, I don't have time for that. I gotta do Excel. And he said, I respect that, but uh, I'll call you back in a week or so. And so he kept calling back. And again, kind of hitting me with this perspective of like, are you interested at all? Because if you are, we really got to go now because you got to, you know, Paralympics that you have to be classified. Classified means that a doctor has to look you over and and, uh, kind of assess you categorically. And in swimming, there's one through 10 in the physical disability realm, one being severe disability, 10 being slightly less. And then there's three visually impaired categories. So I literally needed a doctor to shine a flashlight at my fake eyeballs to say, yep, this guy is definitely blind. <laughs> but that, that, happen, that had to happen within a certain time frame. And then I needed to get the qualifying time to go to the trials, which weren't going to be until I think June or so, but I had to do it in February. But Rich uh, offered to fly me to that meet. It was in Colorado Springs. So I went to that meet. I got the qualifying time. I went to the trials. At the trials, I elevated my time to be a number one ranking, and that earned me a spot on Team USA. I feel like, going back to that sort of mission talk we had a couple minutes ago, I was just really focused on one thing after the other. I didn't really buy into this, the like Paralympic dream until I was there. I think one thing just led to another, led to another, led to another, led to another. All of a sudden, I'm in London. And that's when these things started to materialize for me. And I thought, oh my God, I, at this, I'm at the Paralympics. It's a big deal. There's a huge crowd. I've never swam in front of a crowd like this before. Uh, it's, it's a really big thing. And holy, what if, what if I could win? What if I could win? And then I started to kind of do the mental, like maybe I shouldn't talk about that. I don't want to jinx myself. Let me just focus on my race. So it was, a, it was just kind of almost overwhelming. I actually remember... Uh, for every workout since like I was 12, I'd always have music in my ears to kind of get myself amped up for the race. I remember being in the ready room in, in London. I had to take my headphones off because I was like, I'm already amped. I don't need music to get myself uh, amped up at all. I'm, I'm ready to go. And, uh, and then, it, it, then it came true really before I had kind of dared to dream about it. So it was just really this incredibly surreal experience, especially given a year, like a year to the day I had thought that I had died. And then to be up on the podium on September 7, 2012 was just absolutely incredible. Um, now, so finishing that, you know, the, the first thing that any interviewer does after you win a gold medal like that is ask you like, so are you done? You're going to come back to Rio? And it, in that moment, you're like, hell yeah, I'm going to Rio. That's for sure. This is amazing. This is a lot of fun. So you go back after London and that's where I started to have to think, all right, all right let's, how are we going to do Rio? And, uh, you know, I, I'm all about, uh, London for me was really just about sort of 
kind of becoming that like the the cool calm collected person that you saw like you reflected on like that's who I wanted to be I wanted to be comfortable being blind but then after I went to London and I won I kind of thought well the uh if I were a, a sports fan which I am and I was just if I just stumbled across my own story I'd accuse myself of it being a fluke like well what if he just got lucky like maybe I was just in good shape when I got hurt or Maybe it's an unfair advantage that I was blind. I wasn't blind up until a year prior, that sort of thing. So I thought, well, just to prove that it's not a fluke, I want to go back to Rio and 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 kind of like earn it more or less. So that was my rally cry for those those four years in between London and Rio. I want to earn it. I want to go back. I want to train my butt off for four years and go back and win again. But I don't want to just win one. I don't want to just win two. I want to win three. And I want to leave an, you know, a, a tough mark to break. I want to break a world record. So that's what I did. I went back to Rio. I won three. I set a world record. And then after that, I felt I had an, an incredible experience in Rio and just thought, I, I don't, there's nothing else that I want to do in the pool. There's nothing else that I want to achieve here, but I'm not done being an athlete. Once again, someone jammed a microphone in my face and said, how about Tokyo? And I was like, yes, that sounds like a lot I'll of fun. See you there. <laughs> I'll see you there. And, but then I came back from Rio and the thought of going back to swim practice again, twice a day for another four years, just didn't really excite me the way that maybe doing a blind triathlon did. So I switched at that point and my new mission was figure out how blind people do triathlon and see if I could, if I could crack into that. And it wasn't until really at the beginning of this season, I didn't think I'd make the roster. We have two other really great American blind triathletes. Uh, who had both kind of outperformed me a handful of times. I thought the chance of me cracking into this is minimal, but I'm going to give it my go. And the first race that I have won in triathlon since I've been doing it since 2017 was the selection event. So like it's the race I needed to win to, to make the team I needed to win in Wisconsin back in June. And I did. And that was the first race I won. And then uh, essentially the second international race I won was the Paralympics. And I was not favored to win. I was the eighth seed going in. And uh, my guide and I kind of thought we were going to have to get out. Our, our joke was like our race strategy is to go out fast, get a little bit faster, and then finish even faster. <laughs> and so <laughs> that's kind of how, how we did it. And then uh, we were fully expecting that either Hector from Spain or Dave Ellis from Britain was going to be running us down. So it was part of our race strategy to go get into the run with a minute 45 gap. But I knew, I, for one, I smiled when we came around and, and lap one, we had 145, I thought. So we did what we wanted to do. I came around on lap two, it was still 140 something. And I thought, we've got this. The chance of someone making up a minute 40 on a, in a two and a half K, pretty minimal. I mean, I'm, there are some faster runners and Hector was making up ground, but he's not going to catch a minute and a half in two, 2.5 K. So that's when I started to really kind of get excited. And then the feeling of coming across the finish line in a race like that after five years of all the stuff we've been through was an incredible experience. Absolutely incredible. So what, what do you think it was that day? Because, you know, to get out there like that and you, you see people that and I, I watch a lot of, uh, I love watching like the winter games and the snowboarding and, you know, they'll have these incredible practice runs and then they get out and yeah. a lot of times their, their qualifying run, they don't do what they did in the practice run, you know? So it's like almost yeah. the opposite effect. Right. And so mm -hmm. what was it? What, what was it that you got out there the way you did? Can you equate it to mm -hmm. something? I think it was a confluence of things. Uh, as it often is, but one, um, the course sort of played to my strengths a little bit. Um, it was a really hot, it was hot body of water. So that meant no wetsuit and it meant other people are going to be really uncomfortable in the water. That's not me. Uh, I, I love the, a wetsuit is not an advantage for me. Uh, the more uncomfortable the water is, the more I'm going to have an advantage. So I knew if other people are feeling it in the water, I'd say that's an opportunity for me to get a jump. Um, the transition areas were very short. So in my category, uh, we have what, what is called B1s, B2s, and B3s. B1s are completely blind, and we have to wear blacked out goggles as a validation of that fact. But the B2s and 3s can see just a little bit. They can't see, they can't drive a car, they can't see very far, but they can see a little bit more, which gives them a slight advantage as far as 
running on the tether or even swimming on the tether. Um, they're not as like an example of the ramps coming out of the water. Those will chew me up because I can't see them, but a, a B2 can probably see enough to put their feet in the right spot. So the longer the transition area is, the more things can go wrong for me. And it's typically a disadvantage for the B1s. So short transition area is a hookup for me. Um, uh, there was enough handling on the bike course to make it a, a somewhat it wasn't I wouldn't categorize it as a technical bike course, but the more turns and the more technical the course is, the more a rider like me has an advantage if we can handle the bike right. Uh, I'm not as strong as some of the, some of the cyclists out there, but that course played to my advantage in that it was a little bit technical. And then a nice flat, uh, easy lap run um, plays to my advantage as well. So we knew the course is good for me. We had a pre-camp in Kona and I've just been training my butt off with Tokyo in mind for some time. My guide, Greg Billington, uh, went to the Olympic games in 2016. And so he definitely knows all there is to know about triathlon. And he's been kind of helping me find the way to train over the last, you know, uh, the, the two months leading into Tokyo to really kind of find as much power as we can on the bike to really tweak some of the transitions. And we trained that, that one course over and over and over again. We knew the turns back and forth. We knew the, the, the swim course. We knew the transitions. We were aggressive with the mounts and the dismounts. Um, so that was kind of like the parts of the stuff that we could control. Um, and we were aggressive. We knew like we can, you can race for a podium spot and I could have laid back on the bike a little bit and hope for a good race of the run. But we really were aggressive on the bike knowing that if we have a chance to beat Dave Ellis or Hector from Spain, we're going to need that 145 gap. And that hurt. Like I was uh, going into the 5k after really spending it on the bike like that was, was not comfortable. Uh, but we knew we needed to do that. So anyway, I say that to say, I think it was just a mix of things. I think it was partly preparation, but then I also think on that day, uh, a lot of things just went our way. Um, and I, it begs mention Dave Ellis, the guy who was favored to win, he broke his bike chain coming out of the water. So he wasn't even there to run us down, which, you know, it's, you know, steals the glory a little bit, but uh, I still, I'll still take the gold medal. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So the big burning question is what comes next? Yeah. I had thought after all of the, uh, you know, after this whole pandemic, uh, after delaying it for a year, I've been increasingly been thinking over the last little while that I just, I don't know how long, how much longer I can do this. I'm not young anymore. Um, and the older I get, the more my knee hurts, the more my hip hurts, the more my back hurts, blah, 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 blah. And I just think I, I keep subscribing to this. Maybe there's a shelf life. Maybe I have a shelf life and I can't do this any longer. Moreover, I just got married. Uh, I'm really excited to share that we're ex expecting our first child in March. Oh, so, congratulations. Yeah, we're super excited. And I, I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good dad. I want to be a good student. I want to be a good everything. And I, I keep feeling like the more I'm doing all of these things, the less I can be the best version of any one of those things because I'm doing too much. So I talk, I have this conversation with my wife, like almost every other day, I got, I've got too much going on. I've got to back it off. I can't do everything. And she's the first one to say, you, you can do everything. You are doing everything and it's working. So let's keep doing it. Um, and I, I got to say, I had so much fun in Tokyo and it was such a gratifying feeling come across that finish line first. And uh, my, I had such a good time with my guide, Greg Billington. And I think we looked at the, we looked at the race course afterward and we looked at what we did. And I think we were pretty much immediately able to say, yeah, we won, but we could have done better. And I think that's what I'm all about. I'm always about what can you do better? And if I can find better on that race course, I kind of want to do that. So that's what's next is find better on that course, race next season, race the season after that, see if we can set ourselves up for a Paris run and do better. And, and uh, maybe Dave will figure out how to have a good bike chain on his bike and we can race next time and we'll see who's got it. You know what I mean? So you're in for Paris. Now, I'm in for Paris. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was your long winded way of saying I'm in for Paris. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I feel and like you want to do better. And I don't know what I mean, you want to do better. So I guess that means better time because you can't do much better than the gold. So you want to just do you want to you want to attack the, the course better. Uh, yeah, I want to win gold. But I here's the thing. Like, I think it's going to take better to win. Does that make sense? Yep. I, I think my competition's going to get better. The sport's maturing. There's going to be younger athletes who are 
you know, just as prepared. It's going to take better to win. And I want to win. I love what you said about this idea. And, and I struggle with that a lot too. You know, I, I have my, my hand in a lot of different pots and I'm always like, mm-hmm. should I back away from something? Right. Mm-hmm. Is that going to um, allow me to focus my efforts on, you know, doing something else even better. And I actually have come to find and through self-realization and through my husband that I kind of align where your wife is. Like, I think I do well in the things I do well because I am doing so many things. And, and I don't know that pulling one away is going to help me shift my efforts towards something else that all of a sudden we say, I can do this so much better if I just take this one thing away. So um, I agree with your wife with that sentiment. I think you can still be the best husband, the best father and, um, you know, and, and hit the, hit the road in Paris. So I'm, I'm excited about that journey for you, Brad. I have two more questions with you. Um, One of them is what advice would you give to people who may be thrown into new situations physically and are having trouble navigating them. I have this, when I was teaching at the academy for a little bit of time, I tried to use this concept of reps to help midshipmen specifically figure out how to sort of embrace each individual opportunity as an opportunity to make themselves better. Uh, And the, the easy way to wrap your head around reps is how do you get better at anything in the physical domain? How do you get better at push-ups? You do push-ups. How do you get better at pull-ups? You do pull-ups. How do you get better at running? You run. And you can't, the, the idea of getting better at running without running is laughable. You can't do it. You can't get better at running if you don't run. So you have to do reps to get better at things. My contention to the midshipman is that's exactly how Basically, everything works. If you want to get better at science, you have to do science. If you want to get better at um, you know, English and learning literature, you have to read literature. You have to you know, challenge your brain in that way and do those reps. Uh, in the moral domain, this notion of integrity, which we talk about at the academy all the time, you want to do the right thing. The right thing isn't always easy. In fact, it's almost the, the, the hardest right things are the, the hard, they're you know, doing the right thing can be really difficult at times, but you're not going to get good at having integrity unless you challenge yourself, unless you put yourself in difficult situations uh, and make the right choice. You have to do those reps. So to answer your question, for someone facing something that's new, that's difficult, that's challenging, that's uncomfortable, you have to first say, awesome, this is a rep. This is an opportunity for me to make myself better. I'm uncomfortable and that's a good thing. I'm uncomfortable because I've never done this and, and there's a couple different ways I can do this and I'm gonna, tr- I'm gonna do my best. And if I screw it up, well, I did a rep. And you know what happens when you screw up uh, a lift on the barbell? You drop the barbell and you try it again. Maybe you take off some weight and you try to lift again, but you know it's just one rep and succeed or fail, it doesn't matter. You're just gonna drop the barbell and come back at it again, no matter what. So I, that's kind of the concept that I would hit with the idea of how do you get comfortable being uncomfortable. I love that. And I think it kind of, I could have asked you my last question and you could have given the same answer and it would have been just as brilliant, but uh, <laughs> you know, this is called the resilient life podcast. So I always ask my guests, what, what is living a resilient life look like for you? And, and frankly, I, I think your rep example is just, is, is a perfect, uh, Perfect answer to that, but I'd love to know if there's anything else that you could grant us um, through wisdom sure. of, of what it means to be resilient. Uh, I know you taught this a little bit over at the academy, and so I figured you'd have some great insight for us. Yeah, I will. Uh, I won't presume what I say is wise, but I'll offer you my thoughts on it anyway. <laughs> uh, when I when I try to uh, explain my version of how I conceive of resilience, I, I talk about it, and there's there's sort of like two different forms of resilience and talking about the two forms are helpful in kind of figuring out who you want to be. Um, I throw out these, these ideas of there's, there's a static resilience and there's a dynamic resilience. And the, the resilience that most people talk about, uh, whether they're talking about themselves or their organizations or our, our, our more common understanding of resilience is that of static resilience. 
And what you'll hear people say, like when I was first hurt and I was uh, actually, after I got back from London and I was sharing the story, people will clap their hands on my shoulder and say, it's so great to see how you bounced back. And I think that's a perfect example of this notion of static resilience. Static resilience is we have this normal form, we are who we are, and then this crazy stuff happens and we're knocked off of our feet. And then we wanna get back up to our feet and become who we were again, like return to our normal form. Um, and my offering is that I don't think that any of us really have a normal form. We're a very dynamic entity. We're always changing. We're always learning new things or uh, attaining new perspectives or gaining new experiences and things like that. And I think this notion of a normal form or trying to return to normal or try to bounce back, I think they kind of sell us short. So I present this alternative view on resilience calling it dynamic resilience. So um, dynamic resilience is kind of uh, really embracing the fact that we're always changing, we're always learning and you know, looking at it in reps. Reps is the means to being dynamically resilient. Every new opportunity is an opportunity to make ourselves better. We're just gonna do that rep. We're gonna lift that barbell. We're gonna go for that run. Um, we're gonna challenge ourselves to read this book. We're gonna engage in an uncomfortable conversation. We're gonna to talk to someone who has a completely different belief or worldview than ours and try to understand their point of view. It's challenging, it's uncomfortable, we're gonna do it. It's gonna make us better. And that's being dynamically resilient. Understanding that adversity is the means by which you make yourself better and sort of committing to using every moment as a new rep to make yourself better. I think that's how I conceive of dynamic resilience. I'm not trying to return to who I was. I'm not trying to overcome my blindness or any of that sort of thing. I'm just trying to look at each new day as a new set of opportunities to get incrementally better than I was yesterday. And that's across an, a multitude of domains, whether that's moral, mental, or physical, I wanna make sure that I'm making the most of those reps. Static resilience and dynamic resilience. Awesome. Brad, uh, thank you so much. It's been so awesome to have you on and um, I will be, uh, eagerly awaiting your arrival in Paris in, uh, in four oh. years, and, uh, <laughs> everything that you're going to do. And, you know, I, I like to keep these tight, these conversations, but there is so much, uh, more to Brad's story and everything that he does. We're going to put some links up on our YouTube page. Uh, Brad also released a, a book a few years ago, uh, fire in my eyes. Is that, am I saying it right? Yes. You said it exactly uh, right. Yes. Um, and, you know, great story of his journey that really dives into more of the path that that he um, traveled. And so, Brad, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Resilient Life podcast. Uh, to everyone, please make sure to like, subscribe and share with your friends. Brad, thank you so much. Thanks, Ryan. It's been an honor. Absolutely.